Welcome to Everyday Martial Artist, a weekly podcast where you'll join me, Brian Doucet, as I interview a different martial artist each episode and hear their story. Some guests you may have heard of and some you probably haven't. Be sure to subscribe where all your favorite podcasts are available. Also visit our website at everydaymartialartist.com. If you're listening for a specific interview, I sure hope you'll stay and check out the other episodes. A very special thank you to Topher Williams for our custom theme music. And now, the newest episode of Everyday Martial Artist. Everyday Martial Artist is brought to you by KOonline.com for all your martial arts needs. Sparring and safety gear, rank belts, uniforms, weapons, patches, and more. Wholesale supplies made by martial artists for martial artists. Visit us today at KO-Online.com. Hello and welcome to Everyday Martial Artist. I'm your host, Brian Doucette. And as we do every Thursday, we're joined by a brand new guest talking about their life and their journey throughout the world of martial arts. My guest today has been involved in martial arts for over 30 years, studying numerous styles, which I'm sure we'll get into each and every one of those throughout the show today. He's currently the producer and co-host of the Whistlekick Martial Arts Radio podcast. And for his day job, he's New England's only full-time bagpipe band drumming instructor. Definitely curious about that one. Please welcome to the show, Andrew Adams. How are you doing today, sir? I'm great, Brian. How are you? <laughs> good, good. I think you're only the second bagpipe player I've ever met in my life, so that's kind of cool. <laughs> oh, and well, and I don't actually play bagpipes, really. I'm a drumming instructor. Okay, interesting. So what what specific type of drums? or? So whenever you see a bagpipe band marching on the street, usually yep. that's where people see them marching in a parade. There'll be a bunch of bagpipers in the front, and everybody sees them, and you know they're the ones that, that get all the glory because yep. they're bagpipes. Woo! But marching behind those bagpipers are going to be some drummers. Oh, okay. And my full-time job is teaching that style of drumming. Is that like the same type of drumming you'd see in like a high school marching band or is it different? It's it's along the same vein, but it, it is different. Okay, cool. Interesting. I, I, I saw that and I was like, that's really, really interesting. <laughs> so I'll, tell, I'll check out some videos. You'll have to send me a video sometime. I'd be curious to see that. So I absolutely will do that. Cool. Well, as you know, I know you've heard the show because we had you know, we had Jeremy on the show before, but so you know, kind of know where, where we start things out. We want to learn about that first spark, that first interest. What led to that first interest in martial arts? Sure. Yeah, I was uh, 13, I think. Okay. I, was, I was a freshman in high school, and my mom had just gotten out of a bad marriage, and she and myself and my older brother moved to a new area, new, new part of, uh, of the state, and I felt this need to protect my mom and you know i mean i'm my brother was going to be going off to college he was going to be a freshman or he was a freshman in college um i was a you know a freshman in high school so it was just my mom and i at home and i just felt this desire that i want to protect my mom and i said to her i said i want to i want to learn martial arts and she said okay but you got to do the legwork so i went I was like, well, internet wasn't really a big thing then, so I did what kids do to look stuff up, is I went to the Yellow Pages, and I just looked up martial arts. Okay, and so you let your fingers do the walking. <laughs> I let my fingers do the walking, and and I I went to my mom with the, with the Yellow Pages and said, here's a place I want to go there, and she said, okay, the phone's right there. You give them a call. And so she made me... She, she, I think she figured if this was something that he really wants to do, then mm-hmm. he's going to have to do the legwork to make it happen. Okay. And so I, I called, and of course, you know, it was, I don't, it was, I don't remember what time of day it was or what day it was, but it was they weren't open. And so I remember calling, and the answering machine picked up, and I immediately hung up because I was <laughs> like, I don't know what to do. <laughs> 
And so she's like, well, you got to, you know, leave a message. And I'm like, well, what do I say? So, but that was how I found my, uh, my first martial arts school. So I'm curious then in the yellow pages, first of all, now what area was, of the country was this in and how many schools were there in the yellow pages and what made you pick that one? So, uh, the area was in, uh, White River Junction, Vermont. So okay. right on the New Hampshire border, right kind of the center of the state. I don't remember how many I saw in the Yellow Pages, although growing up in that area and having started, I know there were at least two other schools in the area. Okay. What drew me to that one? I, I, I don't know. I couldn't tell you. Okay. What, I, I don't do you remember, remember what, what, what it was. It was or? Yep, it was Gojiru. Oh, although cool. they were they were called Kaju Kempo. Okay. And it, it, they changed their name shortly after I started training, but I was when I started I was told the KA was for karate and they trained Gojiru and Shotokan. Oh. And the JU was for judo and jiu-jitsu. Okay. And the Kempo was a Chinese style Kempo. Wow. And so I remember for my first rank test I had to do Sanchin which would be from the Goju side. Mm-hmm. And uh, Heian Shodan from the Shotokan side. Yep, I remember that one. Okay. Wow. Interesting. So then thinking back, you know, you, you called them, you left a message, you know, whatever, and you decided to go to think about that first time you walked in and did you watch a first class or did you jump right in? Um, I, I went right in. I, you know, I wanted to take part in class. I, I okay. didn't want to watch. Okay. And so I walked in and I was in awe because, you know, I'm a 13 year old kid. Right. I mean, I, I, enjoyed all stuff martial arts, even though I didn't know what martial arts was. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I had seen, you know, the Karate Kid movies and, uh, or the ones that had come out at that point. Yep. And so I knew about martial arts and I walked in and all of a sudden, like these people wearing these white pajamas and there's different colored belts. And, you know, the instructor comes up and was incredibly personable and very, very friendly and I immediately thought to myself, this is where I want to be. Oh, cool. Talk just a little bit about those first few classes. What are some of the things you remember like doing in class and the first few things you learned maybe? So, I mean, I remember learning kata. I just remember being enamored with the instructor. He was just such a... And, and looking looking back on it now, I definitely felt like he was someone that would be a father figure to me okay. though though he never i mean obviously he never was yeah but he was someone that i looked up to as a role model and was just someone that i wanted to be around and i, I don't remember those specific classes per okay. se but i do remember as a kid doing kata in my shower in your shower that was really yeah and because i was told i need to practice every day okay and I remember at one point he said, you need to find something that you do every day and do it like that. And I'm like, well, I shower every day, so I guess <laughs> I'll practice my kata in the shower. And wow. it was fine when I first started because I only had one or two kata to do. Yep. And and obviously, I mean, for the listeners, like I'm not doing these low, deep stances in the shower. <laughs> That's I mean, what I was just, wondering. Okay. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Like you have no, a big, doing these... really big shower. <laughs> no, no, no. I, was, I mean, it was a, a regular bathtub shower. Okay. And I would just do little movements and, you know, little very small low blocks and yep. then rising blocks and, and everything. And, you know, when I first started out, it was fine. But as I got progressing through the ranks and I had more and more, more, and more kata, my mom would be like, why are your showers taking so long? Because I'm going through all my kata. <laughs> That's awesome. 
Well, see, my mom used to get mad when I first joined. Well, I, when I was uh, 10 years old, I didn't practice much at home when I started martial arts. But when I was in high school and started practicing, I remember she came home one time and I had like the couch all moved it like to one side of the room and chairs moved. And I, <laughs> yeah. I turned the living room into my dojo. I was like, what the hell are you doing? <laughs> yep. Yep. Absolutely. Awesome. So, so that was my first school and it, it wasn't too long after I had started training that they, they broke, my instructor broke from the organization that he was a part of and he cut the curriculum down quite a bit and it became strictly karate wise. It was just a Gojuru school. Okay. Um, and, and we still, it was a traditional Gojuru karate school. So we still did, you know, wrist locks and, you know, some jujitsu and falling and some judo and ukemi and stuff like that. But it was, you know, primarily a Gojuru school. And how long did you stay at that school? All the way through high school and into college. Wow. So probably about five or six years. Because I started as a freshman. Mm -hmm. And when I went off to college, I would come home on school vacations and, and summer break and stuff. And I would go back to training. Okay. And what rank, so probably, what rank did you get through that instructor then? EQ. Okay. So uh, brown belt just before my next test would have been showed on, would have been black belt. Okay. And do, do you regret not uh, not going for black belt with that instructor? Or? You know what? I do. I absolutely do. And, and I stopped training because, uh, you know, at that point I had moved out of my house. Uh, I was living on my own and I'll, you know, I had to pay all my own, you know, pay my way for everything. Mm-hmm. And it just became financially not something I could keep up with. Okay. And I definitely regret not staying there. However, years later, I did reconnect with my first instructor. Oh, very cool. So then that first, like, five, five, six years you did that. Now, did you get into teaching at all at that time? And did you get into competition at all? I did not get into any teaching. Okay. Not not teaching in the sense of, you know, you're in charge of running this class. Right. But, you know, it, it might be small little things like take this one person off there and just help him work this kata. Okay. You know, for, for 10 minutes during class. But it wasn't any formal set of teaching. Okay. Uh, and competition, we were not a competition school. I went to maybe three three tournaments as a kid. Okay. It wasn't, you know, in my whole six years, I think I went to three tournaments. So was that something you enjoyed? Do you remember doing? I do remember enjoying it. The one funny story I remember is <laughs> I was probably 15 or so, 15 or 16. And I w- got second place in one of my, in what, what it, my kata division okay. for my age group. And the trophy that, that handed to me, it had the statue on top was a girl. <laughs> really? Yep. And, and I was, I mean, it's, it's dumb now because who really cares. Right. But I was like, oh man, this really sucks. Like I got a trophy. It's got a girl on it. You know, like what a dumb thing for a kid to think. Right. But I remember going around and finding a girl that that got second place in their division Mm -hmm. and traded trophies with her. (laughs) Because it didn't say, it didn't say like what division you won. It just said second place kata this okay. tournament and so i went to like a, probably an older an older girl who won second but her trophy had a guy and so we ended up switching trophies that's awesome now did you only compete in kata or did you compete in anything else i never in and even to this day i'm not a, a person that enjoys kumite enjoys okay. sparring um i do it and i see that there's value in it but it's not something i really enjoy okay so when i was competing as a kid it was kata and it was kobudo so weapons and forms okay very cool well and what was your weapon of choice um i remember doing kama 
that was the only. I mean, we in our school we started with bow and then moved to kama. Okay. Uh, and so I remember doing a, uh, a my weapons kata was with kama, although I was enamored with the sai. That was the 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 weapon that I really wanted to do because you know Raphael. Had I, was gonna, the sai. I was just going to ask you. You know, around the nineties, it had to be Ninja Turtles. <laughs> oh, absolutely. That's awesome. Actually, one of the first martial arts tournaments I went to in the early 90s, I actually got to meet, it was either Raphael or Donatello, the guy who was in the suit doing the stunts. Uh, was oh, at, yeah. was at the Diamond Nationals tournament in Minneapolis. They had like two or three of the Ninja Turtles were there and some of the Mortal Kombat guys we got to meet. So that was kind of cool. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, he's always been my favorite. And it's kind of funny because you mentioned earlier Jeremy had been on, has been on the show. Mm-hmm. His favorite turtle was also Raphael. <laughs> Nice. And he has a photo of himself as a child dressed up as Raphael. Yeah. And I have a photo of myself as an adult dressed up as Raphael. <laughs> That's awesome. That should be like the picture of the podcast, you guys. Come on. <laughs> that, could be, that could be cool. That could be cool. All right. So then what what was next in your martial arts journey? What came after that? You said you stopped for a while. How long did you stop I, for? I did. Yeah, I stopped training because I ended up moving away mm-hmm. as well. About a, a couple hours north, I actually got uh, took a position, position teaching uh, at a high school. Oh. And, um, you know, moved a couple hours away from White River Junction. So, you know, it didn't make sense for me to still be in, in the school. Right. You know, in that in that dojo, and it was a number of years later that I read a statistic, and I, I don't know if this statistic is true, but the statistic read that eighty percent of people who get to brown belt never get their black belt. Wow, I could see and, that. And like I said, that might be completely false. Yeah. I, I have no idea if it's true or not. But I read that and said, I don't want that to be me. Okay. So I, you know, I was living in St. Johnsbury, Vermont, northern Vermont, and I started looking around for a martial arts school in the area. I didn't; it didn't have to be Gojiru, although that would have been great. Yeah. But there were no Gojiru schools in the area. But there was a Shotokan club. Okay. So I uh, I called them up. This time I had no problems leaving a message. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you know, when, when I finally got him on the phone, he. He said, come on by, check out a class. And the thing that really did it for me was he said, if if you don't, if this is not what you're looking for, that's totally fine. Let me know and I will be more than happy to help you find a place that fits what you're looking for. Oh, very cool. That's a good instructor. Absolutely. Okay. So then what now what was it when you, what, what drew you to that one? Once you got there, what made you want to stay? What made you think it was the one you were looking for? Again, it was, it was the instructor and yeah. it was, you know, it, it Everybody talks about, you know, that this style is what's for them or mm-hmm. this style is what's for them. And, and I, I'm not a, I'm not a big style guy. I mean, yep. yes, I mean, I'm going to talk about these style, quote unquote styles that I've done, but, um, you know, there's no such thing as a best style. If there, if there was, everybody would be doing that one style, you know, and some styles people gravitate towards and that's great. But for me, it's the instructor, um, at least when I was first starting out. And so this guy, again, was very personable, very funny. You know, he respected the fact that I had rank in another system. I certainly went in and said, I'm more than happy to wear a white belt because I don't care about rank either. Mm-hmm. And he said, you know, no, you, you, you got a brown belt, wear your brown belt. And he said, what we'll do is you'll learn our curriculum. And when you're ready, you will retest for brown belt. Okay. And I was like, all right, that's fine, whatever. Like, I'm not in any rush for it. 
So, you know, I, I was there for a few years, mm -hmm. uh, you know, learning all of their new, you know, all of the kata, because for me, they were new. I think I think I had known uh, Heian Shodan or Heian Nidan <laughs> from when I had done Shodokan very briefly before my school, my old school, had, had dropped it. But, you know, I had to learn all the rest of their kata up through their brown belt stuff. So it was a couple of years, uh, and then I tested for brown belt, and then you know, went on later. And I, I was with that school for about 16 years. Oh, wow. How high did you get in rank in there? Uh, third degree black okay. belt. Okay. And there, there, there was certainly a lot more teaching going on. Um, for me, you know, I found when I became a high school teacher, that teaching was just something that I really, really enjoyed. Okay. That I, I like imparting knowledge onto others, especially those that want to learn. Right. I have to ask, because I know I, I I studied Shotokan when I was in high school also. And the one thing, I remember the one thing that stood out when I first got there is that was the first school I had been to that actually had a traditional Makiwara board. Did you guys have one of those? We we did not. Oh, man. <laughs> uh, my, now, my Goju school did. They did? Okay. Yeah, my Goju school had, had a Makiwara with a canvas covering as opposed to actually wrapped with, with um, rope. Yep. But the Shotokan club that I went to practiced at a, v, a local VFW Okay. And so we, you know, we would go in and use their function room every every week for class. Okay. So we we didn't have a dedicated space to be able to put up a makiwara. Okay. Yeah, I know. I, I miss Shotokan. I know when I when I came here to college, there was there was a Shotokan club at a local school, but it was a lot further away. And there was I ended up joining traditional Taekwondo when I started college because that was at my school and on campus. So it was just it was convenient yep. for me. So unfortunately, I'll be you know, that happens a lot. It's convenience. So but yeah. absolutely. I do actually. My my original Shotokan instructor was one of my first guests on the podcast. So stayed stayed in contact nice. with him, and, and and same with my original Tung Sudo instructor from back in 1984. So yep. Yeah. And you know, I had mentioned that I reconnected with my first instructor. Yes. Sh uh, shortly after I got my Shodan, I went. You know, the internet existed at that point, so I went <laughs> yep. online. Uh, I went online and found out how to contact him, and I and I called them up, and I and I told them just you know at this point I was in my late twenties, I think, and and I told them like you know you meant a lot to me as a kid, and and I don't know how much you realize what you meant to me, and you know I would not have been able to do the martial arts that I at that point that I had done without his initial training and, and he, he seemed very touched which was really good and uh, and I actually you know went back and saw him a few times you know when I would go back and visit my mom because she still lives you know still lives in that area right and so you know stayed connected with him and and uh, it was really good to be able to kind of give him that feedback of how much he meant to me as a kid so was there ever a part of you that thought about trying to make it work to go back and get your black belt through him no it just it was just too far away okay. I mean I was like too Two to two and a half hours away. Yeah, that's rough. Okay. Now I know you, you sent to hear some other styles you've done too. You've done some some shorin ru. How did that? When when did that start? How did that come about? So I I, I lived in uh, lived in St. Johnsbury, Vermont, studying Shotokan. I had gotten my second degree black belt. Um, I was slated to take my third degree test in about a year when uh, I got engaged end up getting married and my wife, you know, fiance at the time, and I moved to Cape Cod, which is about five to six hours from St. Johnsbury, Vermont. Okay. So all of a sudden it's like, oh man, like, I, I mean, <laughs> I was supposed to test for a third degree. And again, like, I'm not big into rank, but it was like this cool thing that's like, oh, this would be really fun. And, yep. 
And I was, you know, I was a little bummed. But then I found out, you know, when I told my instructor that I was moving to Cape Cod to be with my fiance, he said, well, where are you moving? And I told him and he said, oh, there's a, a fourth degree black belt from the school that lives down there. He hasn't, you know, he doesn't train with us anymore, but he did for many, many years. He has a fourth degree black belt. Why don't you connect with him? And so I moved to the Cape and trained with this gentleman for a year and then went you know, he and I went back to St. Johnsbury to test for my third Don. Oh, very cool. So now, so it was just pretty much just one-on-one training for a year? Yeah, yeah. Just he and I would get together, so you know, a couple couple times a month. At that point, there wasn't a lot for me to learn, per se. I mean, right. a couple of new kata, but, you know, I mean, I was already a second-degree black belt. I mean, I knew the techniques that I needed to do. I mean, I, I knew all the basics. It, you know, it was just a matter of learning a few new kata, working on some, some other sparring stuff, yeah. and... And whatnot. So it wasn't, you know, it wasn't a huge thing. But shortly after getting that, you know, passing that rank, uh, my wife ended up getting a position elsewhere in the state. So we ended up moving again. <laughs> so, you know, there goes my training. Yep. <laughs> can't, can't train anymore. Uh, and so we moved to um, a couple an hour or so south uh, of where I had been living uh, in White River Junction. And I didn't train for a number of years because I was really busy. Okay. Um, I, I started you know, teaching drumming full-time at that point. Um, I was traveling all over New England most evenings teaching. Wow. And I just, I just didn't have the time for, for training. Okay. So how long of a break was that? About six, six or seven years. Okay. And what, uh, what made you, did you, you just missed it? What made you go back? Yeah. I, you know, I always, whenever I wasn't training, I always felt like something was missing. And my wife uh, and I at the time um, decided to, to part ways very, very amicably. But it was it's still a hard thing to do. Right. And so I moved further south uh, into the state, into Brattleboro, Vermont, where uh, a very good friend of mine was training at a Shore and Rue dojo. And... I said, you know what? I really miss this, and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm recognizing that I'm maybe getting a little depressed, e- even though uh, my divorce was very amicable. It's still a hard thing to go through, and and I, I felt a little depressed, and I said, you know what? I need to get out of this funk. I have a very good friend. She's training at this Shore and Rue school right here in Brattleboro. I'm gonna go check it out, and so th- I started training uh, at the school that I'm now still currently at. Okay, and how long have you been there now? Oh man, all these math questions. You keep asking me these math questions. Carry the Brian. two. <laughs> I think seven years. Okay. Yeah, about okay. seven years now at this point. Nice. And and what rank do you hold on Sean Rue? Uh, second degree. Okay. Black belt. Nice. So again, the instructor, mm-hmm. uh, incredibly understanding that I came in with rank. Again, I I offered to wear a white belt, and he said, "Nope, you you earned that black belt. Like I can't take it away from you." Um, so I would never ask you to not wear, you know, a, a black belt. And so I, you know, started going to classes every week and uh, had been there about three, three, four months or so. And he did, I think, one of the coolest belt things I've ever seen somebody do mm-hmm. for someone coming in with rank. He had, there was a test, you know, on, on, no one going for any real big rank, but just, you know, a bunch of under Q ranks. And he and his instructor invited me to sit up with with the two of them to sit on the board for this test. 
And, I, you know, I was honored. That was great. No problem. Because I'm, you know, I'm wearing a black belt. So they had me set up with the two of them, and they, they administered this test. And, you know, I took notes on some students and whatnot. And there were kids doing the test that didn't know who I was because I only showed up for the adult class. Mm-hmm. And there were also adults. And at the end of the test, everybody lines up. And he calls each student up one at a time and gives them their rank. And at the ver- he called the last student up, gave him his rank, and then the student went back in line. And then he said, there's one person that I haven't called up yet. And I'm thinking, you called up every person that's here. What, what's going on? And he asked me to stand in front of him. And I was like, uh, okay. So I stood in front of him and he gave a, you know, a short speech to the students there, mostly for the kids because I did, the kids didn't know who I was. Mm-hmm. But he said, you know, I want to make it very clear that Andrew is a black belt. He earned this black belt, and I would never ask him to not wear a black belt in this school. However, I would ask if Andrew would be willing to take his belt off. And at the time, I had my Shotokan black belt, had my name embroidered on it, says Shotokan, got three stripes. Mm -hmm. And so I said, you know, of course, I took the belt off. And he pulled out a plain black belt with nothing on it. And he said, I want to make it very clear to everyone here that I am not promoting Andrew to black belt. He is already a black belt, but I'm asking if he would be willing to wear this belt instead, which of course I have no problem doing that. So he gave me this black belt and I put it on and he again reiterated to the class again. I did not promote Andrew to black belt. However, in our school, I'm promoting him to green belt. And so he took out green tape and he put one green stripe on the end of my black belt. So I was to be treated like a black belt, but within the school, officially, I was a green belt. That's cool. And I thought that was a really cool way to recognize someone who came in with existing rank, but still show within the curriculum, this is where they are. Because to me, rank doesn't really matter. I mean, right. it, it doesn't matter in terms of trying to compare one black belt in this school to one black belt in another school of course they're not going to be equal i don't care what those schools are even if they're within the same organization they may not be the same all that rank is for is to show where they are with the curriculum that they currently have in their school so i was to be treated like a black belt but i knew the curriculum for green belt that's really, really cool. I mean, that's kind of this question is kind of popping on my head. Obviously, you got lucky with like three instructors. What are the yeah. similar qualities of each of those instructors that, I mean, obviously you were drawn to each of them for a reason. Is there something similar you can pick out maybe from each of them that's kind of the same? You know, it's, it's interesting because in a lot of ways, all three of them were very different. But I think the biggest thing is that I could tell right away that the, all three of them were open-minded people that were humble, that not one of them came off with any ounce of arrogance whatsoever. And as a child, I picked that up very quickly with my Gojiru instructor. As an adult, I went to my Shotokan instructor and he said, if this isn't what you want, that's totally fine. I will be more than happy to help direct you to a place that might be a better fit. That's incredible. Mm -hmm. You know, for for an, an instructor to say, and understand and recognize that I am not everybody's cup of tea, and that is okay. So, and then, you know, with my current instructor, the same thing. Like, very open, very humble. 
you know, willing to let somebody come in and, you know, with rank and respect that rank. I think that meant a lot. That's cool. I know I, I'm, you know, I've, I've been lucky too. I've had one bad instructor in, in 38 years of martial arts. I've only had one that I call my Mr. Crease, you know, instructor. <laughs> so, but yeah, I'm, I'm this, and I'm kind of the same way when people come into the school, I, I, I go to and stuff and they ask questions. If I honestly think it won't be a fit, I've, I've had other instructors call me up and be like, did you send a student to my school? I'm like, yeah, it, that's, that was more of what they were looking for. I'm like, oh, thank you. you know, they're, yeah. they're kind of shocked that I would do that. I'm like, yeah. you know, it's, I don't want someone here. We don't want someone here who doesn't want to be here. You know, I want, I want someone to love martial Absolutely. arts like I do. That's cool. Yep. Yep. I agree wholeheartedly. So, and so I've been with this school since then. Um, I, I've only, I didn't actually test for green belt. He right. just gave me rank because I'd been there three months. I, mm-hmm. I knew the basics and whatnot. And then I officially tested, my next test was for EQ, which would be the rank right before black belt. So I went from green belt straight to brown belt. And he put brown tape on the end of my black belt. Nice. And then my friend that I had started training, that she had already been at the school, she and I tested for our showdown together, which was really nice. That's awesome. That's just such a cool story. So I'm kind of curious. I, I never got to ask Jeremy this, but I'm, how did you meet Jeremy? I'm, I'd love to hear that story. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, as we talked about earlier, I, I teach drumming for a living, mm-hmm. specifically to bagpipe bands. And I had been listening to the Whistlekick Martial Arts Radio for, a, at that point, a couple of years, maybe a year. Okay. And there was a guest on that talked about if you're going to do something you're going to learn something whether it's martial arts or anything you should endeavor to learn from the best and you might not be able to whether it's financially or logistically you might not be able to learn from the best but you should endeavor to do that and i had in my head this idea of i would really like to start a podcast about bagpipe band not necessarily drumming but just Mm -hmm. you know interviewing pipers and drummers from around the world and I have been in the the, the pipe band world long enough that you know a, most of the top people in the world are people that I can call on the phone and say hello to and they, they'll accept my call because they know me so I thought you know what I'm listening to Whistlekick Martial Arts Radio they interview these people I could run a podcast kind of the same but just instead of with martial artists with top level bagpipers and drummers and I would like maybe I want to do a podcast so I emailed Jeremy out of the blue and said, hey, I want to learn about podcasting. I know nothing about it, but I listen to your show and I enjoy it. So I would love if you would be open to it to meet and talk about it. And he said, sure. He wrote me back, sent me an email back and said, yeah, you know, it, I'm happy to chat with you on the phone about it. And I said, no, like you were only two hours away from me. I will drive to you. I'll drive two hours to your place. Or, or not, you know, I didn't go to his house, but we met, you know, downtown Montpelier, Vermont, and sat down and we just talked about podcasting and how how it works, you know. Cause, and I literally knew nothing. Okay. And so that's how I first got connected to him, mm-hmm. in you know, as a person. And he would... He needed some help with the Facebook page, and so I helped out just moderating and being an admin on, on the, the, the page. Okay. And there was an email that got sent out at one point that they were looking for podcast guests. Like they, they'd, There had been an issue. The only time the, the show ever 
failed to put out an episode was when he had been recording, and, and this is all, this was pre-me, yep. uh, but he had been recording on Skype, and Skype had recorded everything, but it had recorded everything blank. Ooh. And he had recorded like four or five episodes that day. Ouch. And, and all of a sudden, oh shoot, he's <laughs> like, I need, I need to get guests quickly so that, you know, we don't have five weeks of no guest. Mm-hmm. And so the producer at the time, uh, you know, they had put out this email saying, if anyone's interested in coming on, and I wrote and said, I don't, I don't know if my story's any good, but I mean, I, I guess if you, <laughs> if you want to interview me, I guess I'll come on. And so he interviewed me for an episode, and we just stayed connected. I went to an event that Whistlekick ran, and later on they put out another... Jeremy put out an email saying, you know, I'm thinking about maybe getting a co-host. If, if you guys can think of anybody, or what do you guys think of that? And the email was sent to the Patreon subscribers. That's right. Okay. And so, you know, only a, a select few people got this email, and I emailed Jeremy and said, hey... I know that you have a ton of people that you could tag to be on your show as your co-host. Because at this point, he had done like five or six hundred, you know, five hundred, five hundred plus episodes. And I'm like, you, you know, so many people in the martial arts world. You could probably get anybody you want as a co-host. But I would love to be considered for the position. And he wrote back and said, "I'll be honest, Andrew." You were the one person I was thinking of when I wrote that email, but I didn't want to ask you directly. I wanted to see if you were really interested. Nice. And I've been the co-host of the show ever since. Um, the producer ended up having to leave for some uh, you know, family issues and things going on, so I stepped up and took over and have been the producer and co-host ever since. It's been a couple of years now. Nice. So then for the maybe the listeners who don't know, like on the, the inner and outgoings and everything of a podcast, what exactly does a producer do? So I'm responsible for getting guests and having them booked, making sure that they, you know, that they have everything they need when they show up, keeping organized track of who's coming on when, when episodes are getting released, staying in contact with those guests before and after recording, you know, when their episode comes out, I let them know, hey, it's coming out next week, you know, th- things like that. Mm-hmm. And also as co-host, I'm also helping to come up with topic ideas for us to discuss because, you know, we, we put out two podcasts a week. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, we just released, uh, as of this recording, we, we just released episode 719. Wow. You know, we're putting out two a week. One is an interview and one is a topic driven mm-hmm. show. So we'll, you know, we'll discuss some sort of topic in the martial arts. And with that many episodes, it can become difficult to figure out what are we going to talk about this week? <laughs> One a week can be difficult. I can't imagine two. <laughs> yeah. Trust me. It's, it's quite, it's quite a juggling act at times. I'm only on 67. So, <laughs> but how many people are not at that? True. You know? Uh, oh, I know. That's, uh, like I said, it's less than, God, I, I remember reading the stats when I, it might, might've been more by now, but out of like the 2 million podcasts that have been out there, like 93% of them, didn't go past seven episodes. <laughs> that's yeah. That's just a and that doesn't stat. surprise me. A lot of people try it. They do one or two, and they're like, "This, yeah. this is hard. I don't want to do it anymore." I knew going in what yeah. I mean. I, I had a radio background. I had done syndicated radio. I knew what I was getting myself into. So, <laughs> and I still chose yep. to do it. Yep. Yeah, and it's great. And you know, the philosophy that my Shotokan instructor had with martial arts is very similar to how you know I feel in regards to martial arts podcasts. That you know. I listen to other martial art podcasts. I mean, mm-hmm. yes, I'm the producer and co-host for Whistlekick, but 
I listen to your podcast every time it comes out. I listen to, um, I just picked up a, listening to another martial arts podcast called Conversations on Karate. Yeah, that's a good one. I've listened to a few episodes of that and, one. And like, I really enjoy that. And that's not to say that everybody has to listen to our podcast. Our goal is not that everybody listens to our podcast. Our goal is everybody trains. Right. And if there's another martial arts podcast that, that appeals to you, that is awesome. And so I love that we have that philosophy that there, there is a place for everyone in this world. Yeah, I know. Because, I mean, when I got into radio years and years and back in the old days, I mean, if you had two similar shows, it was it was competition. They, I don't care where, how far apart they were. You know, they didn't help each other. They didn't care about each yeah. other. It's like, you know, it's just the sharing information. I mean, you'd lose jobs for that back then. So I'm, I'm, gl- I'm glad we're much more evolved at this point. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So this question, obviously, as we've been talking, I'm pretty sure I know the answer to this one and what you're going to give. But advice for people looking for a martial arts school for the first time. What are, what are some tips you'd give them on what to look for in a school and or an instructor, obviously, and some things to maybe avoid? Well, for me, the biggest thing is what's your rationale for training? What's your purpose? Is it is it for self-defense? Because if that's the case, you're not going to want to go to a necessarily a competition-oriented school. You know what? So trying to figure out what it is you're looking to get out of it is the first kind of questions I'd ask. But the biggest thing to look out—not I don't say look out for—but the biggest things to look for is an instructor that you can relate to, that that you can get along with, and learn from. Because the bad instructor can ruin it for you, right? And even a mediocre instructor can be can be fine, but a bad instructor will be worse. And it's it's. I mean, like I said, some people you don't know. I mean, that's why my biggest tip is you never sign a long term contract. <laughs> yeah, and and I mean, I and I've heard that, and you, I have been very fortunate with the schools that I've trained at, and I recognize that. Mm-hmm. But being in the martial arts world in a bigger sense now than I'm with Whistlekick, I, I get the sense that those types of programs are few and far between at this point. Yeah, I've noticed that. I mean, from 20 years ago, it was so hard to find a school without having to sign a long-term contract. And now it seems like the real, most schools are getting away from that. I think they know they yeah, can't and, do and it And I anymore. think people are recognizing that that's not the way to go. Yep. Or, or even worse is like some of the schools that have the what they call the black belt contract, where you sign this contract and we guarantee on this date you will get your black belt. In exactly. 18 months or two years. I'm like, can't do that? <laughs> like, come yeah, on. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and, and here's here's the reality. This this you know, what's the how long does it take the average person to get a black belt? Asking me that question is different than asking someone else, I guess, but it, it, to me it would depend on, well, first of all, it depends on the person, but it also depends on the style because I know there's some. No, the, an- the answer is the average person doesn't get a black belt. Yes, duh. <laughs> I knew that one. <laughs> yes. Sorry, yeah. I, I, no, I digress. I, it's all good. It's all good. <laughs> I've actually heard that before and I, I walked into that one, so that was good. But... <laughs> you totally did. <clears throat> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's good. All right, so MMA and the UFC. What, what are your thoughts on that? Are you are you a fan and and obviously I know you said you weren't really into competition, so probably something you would have never wanted to try when you were younger. But are, do you watch it? Are you a fan? And what are your thoughts on it? So I I, I want to correct one thing mm-hmm. this, that you said. I am a fan of competition. Okay. I do enjoy competition. The school that I happened to be at as a kid didn't do a lot, but I really enjoyed the ones that I did do. Okay. Um, I was not a fan of sparring per se, oh, okay. and I'm still not, but... 
but I do enjoy competition. And in the drumming world, in the bagpipe band world, I'm very heavily involved in competition. Oh, I suppose, yeah. But in regards to UFC, when it first came out, I loved it. I was a huge fan. And, you know, would watch them every time they came out. When it started to become pay-per-view, it became a little harder. Because I would I, I worked at a video store for a while, so I could get the, the VHS tapes and like nice. watch them that way. I am no longer a fan of the UFC mm-hmm. slash M- I mean I I don't want to say I'm not a fan of MMA. Right. I have no problem with M- MMA. My, my problem is with the large commercial organizations like the UFC, although they're not the only game in town. Right. And they I might even go so far as to say they promote bad behavior. Mm-hmm. That there are members of their community that do bad things and are bad people. And some will say, oh, no, that's not real. It's fake. Like WWE, it's a persona. (laughs) Well, maybe it is, but they're okay with that persona. And I don't think people should be okay with that. And so I don't like what the UFC has become, but I like what it was when it started. Agreed. I used to be diehard. I used to never miss an episode. And I probably haven't sat down and watched a full event in about five years. So. <laughs> yeah, but a lot of amateur MMA stuff is amazing. Yes, and a lot of it to me comes down to and and I have not watched a lot of UFC lately mm-hmm. because I started to notice this trend. But in the earlier days, I remember this happened a lot, and it was respect. Mm-hmm. The competitors would get in the ring and they respected each other, you know, and when they. Were in the ring fighting, yes, they were enemies. But when they got out of the ring, when they were done, they would shake each other's hand or they would bow to each other and they were fine. Yeah. And that doesn't happen as... It, it, when it happens now, I, my understanding is it's very rare. Very rare. You know, but when you saw people, and you know, obviously we're stepping outside of UFC, but when mm-hmm. Joe Lewis and Bill Wallace got in the ring and fought each other, they were better enemies but the minute that bell rang they were the best of friends yep and they had that mutual respect for each other and i don't get the sense that that happens in the ufc anymore people legitimately hate each other and the reality is if you're stepping in the ring and someone is willing to give their body to you you should respect that yeah so do you go to any local events i mean is it sanctioned where you are no it um there there are events of that nature here and you know there are amateur mma events you know that are within a few hours drive to me it's not something that i've i've ever really done okay if you ever do find a like a local one that you don't have to drive too far i guess i don't know maybe it's different but i know i used to judge local ones and i've judged probably a thousand local amateur and pro fights and some of those local ones are better better fights than the UFC, and there's some great ones. And we just we haven't haven't had that many in the last few years. I mean, when COVID hit and stuff, and I think we've maybe had three sanctioned events in the last maybe four or five years. So locally, yeah, so yeah. a little bit different, but yeah, same thing. I mean, it just it's just kind of left a bitter bitter taste in my mouth and kind of quit. I, I I love how you though you mentioned you know Bill Wallace, Joe Lewis. I really hope kickboxing makes a comeback. I know. A few of my previous guests have talked about that. I know there's things mm-hmm. being worked on. I would love to see kickboxing make a comeback because <laughs> I, I used yeah, to love yeah, watching time, that. Time will tell. Hopefully. Fingers crossed. So, All right. So who would you put on your Mount Rushmore of martial arts? Oh, boy. I mean, the obvious answer is my past instructors. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I would say I, I like the blending of the old and the new. 
So okay. the the old would be like Anku Atosu. Okay. Uh, you know, Funakoshi, like the you know, some of those guys. But I really enjoy the stuff that Ian Abernathy is doing. Oh yeah. Yes. Um, and his it is practical karate stuff. Um, you know, I, I had the pleasure to to take a seminar with him pre COVID a number of years ago and then I was actually in Scotland uh actually at the World Pipe Band Championships and my wife flew over towards the end of our stay um just before the the World Championships and we ended up staying for a week after kind of as a honeymoon and you know Ian's dojo is only a, a few hours south of Glasgow and I had contacted him ahead of time and you know on on my honeymoon my wife and I you know hopped into a car and drove drove down to his school and so I got to train at his school and, and nice. he was like, I can't believe you did this on your honeymoon. Like your what <laughs> your wife is amazing. And and you know what? He was right. That's cool. Yeah. Uh, he's actually uh, hopefully a future guest. I know I, I talked to him back in April and I know he's he's super, super busy and told me to get a hold of him in about five or six months and he he'd work it out. So hopefully have him on the him on the show in a few months would be good. Super oh, super great. cool guy. So mm-hmm. All right, so obviously you've been traditional martial arts your your whole career for over thirty years. Uh, what are uh, one or two philosophies you've learned that are really important to you and and you keep coming back to? The the ones that I I have a couple actually, and okay. they they transcend just martial arts per se. But one of them is that slow and perfect is still perfect. Nice. Fast and wrong is still wrong. It doesn't it doesn't matter. Uh, I mean, I, I use this quote in drumming quite a bit, but it's, it, I find it holds a lot of value in martial arts as well. That if you can do something perfect, it doesn't matter how slow it is. Perfect is perfect. You can't get better than you can't get better than perfect. <laughs> that is true. Uh, so that's one. And then another one is winners practice until they get it right. Champions practice until they can't get it wrong. Nice. I like that. I've never heard that one before. That's good. Cool. I'm writing that one down. <laughs> That's one thing I need. I've actually had that suggestion from some guests. I need to have a, a link on my on my website with some of the, like the the philosophies and stuff and like the books and all <laughs> that. And just another another project to <laughs> add more time to my life. I guess I'll have to. Yeah, because I'm sure you don't have enough. Yeah, I know. I'll have to hire someone for that one. But but uh, so yeah. Well, so you can have something to add to the list. Favorite martial arts book. You know, I'm not a huge book guy. Okay. Now, that's not to say that I, I haven't read some. I'm I'm a fan of the... Oh, gosh. It's going to escape me my, right now. Hang on. Let me turn and look at my books. Oh, Iron and Silk. Silk. Iron and Silk. And it's not strictly a martial arts book. Okay. It was a... I first got introduced to it as a movie, actually. And it was about a gentleman named Mark Salzman. Um, who wrote a book by the same name. And it was about his travel to China in the 70s to become an English teacher, to teach English to some teachers in China who had been Russian teachers, but because of the, the break from communist China, they were now being forced to learn English. And he had studied Kung Fu here in the United States and then you know traveled over to, to China and wanted to learn Kung Fu over there. And it, it's a really interesting movie if you can find it. It's called Iron and Silk. And it was, there definitely is martial arts through, through the movie because it's his journey trying to learn from one of the, the, the biggest uh, martial arts kung fu wushu uh, instructors in China at the time who was known as the Iron Fist 
of China. Okay. Because he would hit a, a metal plate with his hand a thousand times a day. Jeez. And when he proposed making this, and he ended up, you know, training with this gentleman. And when he wanted to have a movie made of his book, he had to get permission from the instructor to use his likeness. And this instructor, the Iron Fist of China, said, you can use my likeness, however, no one is allowed to play me in the movie but me. Oh. And so it was actually him in the movie. Wow. Which is okay. pretty cool. I'm actually just reading, I'm marking it right now, so I go back and find it and watch it later. So 1990 Canadian action comedy. Okay. Yep. Mark Salzman. Cool. Awesome. I marked that one down. That's, that's I love that because I, I, I had so many books to my library <laughs> since I started this show. And <laughs> now to find Well, and to I'll tell them. you, that that book is a pretty easy read. I, I, I remember after I watched the movie, I, I got a copy of the book and read it. And it's not a really, it's not a long book. It's not okay. a big book. It's not a hard read. But it, it was enjoyable. And the movie was obviously a little bit different. They, they portrayed the love interest a little bit differently in the movie than really happened in the book. But, you know, okay. they wanted to make it a movie. But, but it, was really, it was really enjoyable. All right. So obviously this one, kid of the 90s and 80s like me, favorite martial arts video game? Oh, I was a fan of Tekken. Nice. And my favorite character was the drunken master guy. Very cool. Okay. Whose name eludes me. God, I haven't played Tekken in over 20 years. <laughs> so my drunk, the drunken Kung Fu guy was my favorite and followed up closely by the Capoeira guy. Ah, uh, yes. Eddie? I think yep. his name was Eddie. Yeah, I think that's right. I like, I like Yeah, because I, I think that came out around the time I saw the movie Only the Strong, so I loved the Capoeira guy. <laughs> yep, yep, absolutely. Very cool, okay. All right, favorite martial arts TV show? So there's not a ton to choose from. To, I mean, that are true, like, martial art TV shows. I mean, yeah. I obviously, I, I did watch, I mean, it came out before my time, but obviously I've watched Kung Fu. Mm -hmm. Before you ask, yes, I watched The Legendary, nice. The Legend Continues. Did you actually like it or no? I, I did because See, it was martial arts. You're the only other guy I've met that actually liked it. <laughs> well, so apparently, though, if you ask Jeremy, I have bad taste <laughs> when it comes to that sort of stuff because he and I have a long standing feud about the movie Best of the Best. Love that movie. So <laughs> shortly after I became co-host of the show, I you know I had to come up with ideas for our Thursday episodes mm -hmm. and I suggested why don't we review a movie? How about we do Best of the Best? And he said, "Okay, that's great. I have not seen he had not seen the movie." Really? Okay. Yep. And I had seen it as a kid. Mm -hmm. I had seen it multiple times. I freaking love that movie. Me too. <laughs> and so, you know, I re-watched re it again for, for our recording. And, we, you know, I showed up and we were, doing, we were doing it via Zoom at that point. So I started to mention something about it before the recording started. He said, no, 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 hang on. Let's save it till the recording. Okay, sure. <laughs> so we started the episode. He hated the movie i mean absolutely positively 1000 percent hates that movie can't believe it got made has almost nothing good to say about it thinks james earl jones gave the worst performance of his life what it, it's, and and so it has become a thing with us in a very fun and funny way 
But yeah, um, you know, we, I almost decided to come up with t-shirts that said Team Andrew and Team Jeremy at one point. I, I tell you, I just lost a little bit of respect for Jeremy. Yeah. <laughs> and between you and sorry, me, I think sorry, he has bad taste in movies. You know, you know, and, and some of his criticisms of the movie I get. I mean, I, I get where he's coming from. Yeah. But I think the movie has other redeeming qualities. But yeah, it was it was bad. If everybody, if anybody wants a really fun laugh, like go on YouTube and because that was an episode we did in video. I don't remember the, what episode it was, but it was like in the five hundreds, I think. I will find it because now I want to watch that. It, it was we we laughed. So I, that might be the episode that, that I laughed the most during, just nice. because I couldn't believe he did not like that movie. James Earl Jones. James Earl Jones had a great performance in that. I mean, come on, a team is not a team unless you don't give a damn about one another. I know <laughs> that speech. I mean, come on. I know. I, I loved it. <laughs> the only character I did not like in that whole show. Oh, I can't remember her name now, but the female that they brought in. The yes. sensei. I, I did not like her. She was the only person who I think was completely out of place in the movie. And like, what are you doing here? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But everyone else, I loved. You know, I liked Virgil. I liked them all. So yeah, I had I had no issues. I had no issues with the movie. I like nice. it. He nice, does not. Nice. All right, cool. Well, speaking of movies, favorite martial arts movie. Oh gosh. So I worked at a video store for a long time. Mm-hmm. And I used to tell people, you're not allowed to ask someone that works in a video store what their favorite movie is, because they've <laughs> seen so many. It's just not fair. Mm-hmm. I would say Best of the Best is up there. And yep. Jeremy, if you're listening, I don't care. <laughs> um, I've seen most every martial art. Like, not, okay, let me take that back. I've not seen every martial arts movie. But right. from from the 80s and 90s, I probably saw them all. Okay. A favorite one. If you can't think of a favorite, what's the one you think you've seen the most? Without a doubt, it'd be the Karate Kid. Nice, nice. Yeah. Cool. Mine too. So obviously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's cool. <laughs> and uh, and speaking of movies, I know we should uh, maybe give a little teaser. A, a project that me and Andrew have actually been talking about for a few months, and I'm my goal is to do this in July. Finally, we've been talking about it for a long time, and yep. I finally want to do it. I'm going to bring bring back Andrew and I'm going to bring back one or two other guests and we're and, and the whole topic of the show is going to be cheesy martial arts movies of the 80s. Oh, so, I can't wait to talk about Jim Cotta. I'm just going to say it's going to be movies like Jim Cotta, oh, American man. Ninja, I mean things like uh, Yep, Michael Dudikoff. Yes, yes. Oh. Uh, I don't I don't know I don't know if you can get worse than Jim Cotta, but we'll decide that. We're going to we're going <laughs> to narrow it down to like 5 and then we're going to rank the, the five cheesiest martial arts movies of the 80s. It's going to be so much fun. So so watch for that episode. I, I I'm Fingers crossed I can make it work in July. So Coming uh, soon to a computer near you. <laughs> that's right. That's right. That'll be good. That'll be good. All right. Final one. Doesn't have to be a martial arts movie, but favorite movie fight scene. Okay. So let's see if I can remember the name of it. So this is an, this is an oldie. Okay. It was a movie. It had two different titles, depending on whether you got the Asian version, the, like the Chinese version of the movie, mm-hmm. or you got the, the American version. I believe the two titles were Shaolin Challenges Ninja or East Meets West or e- Hero Hero of the West maybe I'm not going I I might have to look it up and send it to you later. Okay. And it was about this Japanese woman uh, a karateka that was married off to a Chinese like noble person and she like moved to China to to, to be with her husband. It was like an arranged marriage type thing, I guess. And she starts practicing her karate in his garden, like punching, you know, statues and things because he doesn't have any traditional Japanese training, makiwaras or whatever. 
And he's like, what are you doing? That's not martial arts. And he starts doing his, you know, Kung Fu Wushu. And she's like, that's not martial arts. Like, we, we're Japan and we have the real martial art. Blah, 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 blah. And so she, he says something stupid like, um, you know, Chinese martial arts is better than anything. And we can beat anybody. And so she sends a letter home. And the, her family sends over, like, the top martial artists in all the Japanese disciplines to challenge him. And so he has to fight a you know, unarmed combat. And so there's a guy doing karate, and he's doing kung fu. And there's, like, a weapons guy. And the coolest one was when he fights with the three-sectional staff. Okay. And I remember seeing this as a kid, and I taught myself the routine really? that he does in this fight. And so, cool. without a doubt, that, and I think he was fighting a guy with one nunchaku and one tonfa, maybe, uh, I think it was one tonfa, or maybe it was just two nunchaku. Okay. But it was really cool to see the Chinese version counterpart to the Japanese oh, yeah. style. It looks like Gordon Liu was in that movie. Yeah, it could have been. I found Did it. You it co- I found it. Uh, here, it actually had four titles. Heroes of the East, also known as Challenge of the Ninja, also known as Shaolin versus Ninja, and also known as Shaolin Challenges Ninja from 1978. Yeah, I remember it as, when I got it at the video store, it was Shaolin Challenges Ninja. Okay. Yeah. Now, make no mistake, the movie as a movie is not very good. I can recognize and admit that, but the fight scenes were really cool to see the different styles of fighting. Awesome. I will definitely add that to my list and at least fast forward through the fight scenes. So Yeah, yeah, yeah. That'll be good. That'll be good. All right, so anything else we want to mention before I let you go, Andrew? Uh, and I'll definitely, like I said, uh, as I did with Jeremy, I'll put links for the podcast and everything and anything else you want me to put links about. So No, I don't think so. Like, you know, my, my biggest thing is train. You know, a, a, even a bad day of training is better than no training at all. That is true. And, you know, my current biggest pet peeve is the word McDojo. Yeah. I hate it. I hate that word. I don't use the word hate often, Brian. I hate that word. So you don't just don't like people using it at all, or you don't like what the McDojos are? Um, I, I don't like that it is used. Okay. And here, here's why. Here's my, here's my philosophy on it. And I think this comes from having trained with so many open-minded instructors. Let's say there is a school in my town that teaches martial art that I don't think is good. Mm-hmm. Okay? That instructor has tons of students... Those students, and this is all hypothetical, I'm not saying, okay, but that instructor has tons of students, and those students are happy training with him or her. Great. They're going to come to the school I train at and not be happy. And I'm going to, and the students that are happy at my school would go to their school and not be happy. Now, the argument that people give when they talk about McDojos is that, oh, but those people aren't really learning anything. Who cares? Oh, but they have a black belt, and they're giving us black belts a bad name. No, they're not. The only person that can give your black belt a bad name is you. So don't worry about what other people are doing. And here's the other reality. That person that got their black belt at their quote-unquote McDojo, if they were to get into a real fight, people are like, they're going to get their butt kicked. They're walking around with a false sense of security. Well, maybe that's true. But here's the reality. That person has a black belt. They feel confident. They feel like they can defend themselves. Whether they can or cannot is irrelevant. They are going to walk around 
as someone who is not going to look like a victim. People that often get attacked, and, and yes, I'm making a gross generalization, they, people who are walking around confidently typically do not get attacked. People, if they're going to get attacked, they're looking for victims. And right. someone who has a black belt in a, quote, McDojo still feels like they're not a victim, so they're going to walk around more confidently. Ultimately, that is going to help them. Who cares if that black belt doesn't can't do what a black belt in my school can do? That's a good way to look at it. So that's my thing. I hate. I just hate the term McDojo. Just who cares what everyone else is doing? Pay attention to what you're doing. Perfect way to end it. I like that. It's a good thing to good outlook to have and and good advice for people. So, so Andrew, thank you very much, sir. I've enjoyed this so much, and and I can't wait to have you back on and, and do our cheesy martial arts '80s movies throwdown that we're gonna have <laughs> we'll have to get that set up soon but uh i seriously i, I appreciate your time I, I love your story and, and it just it's been a pleasure having me on the show brian thanks so much i had a blast i really appreciate it and, and i love what you do thanks for listening to everyday martial artists we hope you'll join us every week for a brand new episode with a different martial artist telling their story if you enjoy the show be sure to leave us a review also be sure to check out our website at everydaymartialartist.com there you can find all of our episodes and contact us to suggest guests and ask questions. Again, thanks for listening to Everyday Martial Artist, and we'll see you next week.